Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 30. The book of Proverbs, chapter 30. If you are with the threes and four-year-old class, you are dismissed to your class. Thank you for worshiping with us. If you need a copy of God's Word, uh, we have extra copies of God's Word in the back, and so uh, just slip up your hand, and uh, one of our church members will bring you a hard copy of the Word. They're running back there to get it now. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 30, and we will begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 6. Slip up your hand, they're here now, if you need a Bible, and they're coming down the aisles. Proverbs chapter 30, beginning with verse 1. <clears throat> the words of Agur, son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely, I'm too stupid to be a man. <laughs> I've not the understanding of a man. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists, who has wrapped up the waters in a garment, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Let's pray to the Lord. Father, we just want to thank you for the book of Proverbs and our journey through it uh, over the last five months. Lord, we come to you, and we come to a chapter this morning that's very different from other chapters we've seen in the Proverbs thus far, and we just pray for your grace to understand it. Help us to understand why it is you've preserved these words for us for thousands of years. God, help us to not only understand it, help us to respond to it rightly. Uh, worship is response to your word. And so, Father, may we worship rightly this morning. And I pray that you would fill me with your spirit in a recognizable way, a way in which all of us sense that the one true God is meeting with us through the words that you have provided. So, Father, we pray these things by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 1. The words of Agur son of Jacob, the oracle. Obviously, this is very different than where we have been for the last 
five to six weeks. Our journey through the Proverbs looked like this so far. We did every single verse in chapters one through nine. Then in chapter 10, the structure changed. Chapter 10 all the way through 29 are more randomized. The Proverbs uh, are just like a big box of wise sayings. And so what we did was case studies along the way. We looked at uh, a study of wisdom and money through all of those chapters. We looked at uh, wisdom and patience, wisdom and friendship. We uh, looked at wisdom and godly ambition uh, last time that we were together. So we traced these themes through those sections which were more random. And now in chapter 30, the form and the style changes because the author has Changed. Proverbs chapter 30 introduces us to a new author that is now making appearance, not King Solomon, but rather this guy named Agur. Now, we do not know much of anything about this man other than what we see in this chapter. All we know about this guy who wrote this chapter is in this chapter. We don't see his name anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, we really don't see it in any of the historical narratives. We don't see any other works of him. But apparently he was well known enough for his writings and for his wisdom to be placed side by side with the wisdom of King Solomon. And his writing is even called an oracle here. Normally, normally that's reserved for prophets who are speaking on behalf of God. So we, we don't know what this guy did for a living. We don't know what his family situation was. We don't know the circumstances of his birth, his life, his death. We don't know what his personality was like. At the same time, as soon as we begin to read him, we find that we know him very well. We find that we can relate to him very well. We very much identify with what Agor begins to confess about his own human experience. Look at verse 1. The words of Agor, son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. First thing that we learn from this man, Agor, is something we already know, and this is truth number one, if you're a note taker. Truth number one, weariness is the human experience. Weariness is the human experience. Again, we, we're not given any type of specific reason for the weariness that man confesses, but we are left to fill in the blank for ourselves. Many things about life itself show our human susceptibility toward this feeling of weariness. Some of y'all tired all the time, right? If I were to ask you, how was your week? How you doing? I'm tired. Consider the many things in our daily existence that cause us to feel weary. Consider just physical weariness itself. Some of y'all, I'm like three minutes into the sermon, and y'all physically weary enough to close your eyes. Right now, physical weariness sets in, right? Every day, we, we have to eat food. We've got to drink water lest our energy be depleted. Every day, we have to sleep. 
Amen? (laughs) And if that sleep is interrupted or cut short, the next day is affected. If we go even 24 hours without sleep, the effects on our body and our mind are almost debilitating, right? Our neediness for things like food and drink and sleep, what, what are they except constant reminders of our humanity? Every day, you're reminded that you are not invincible, You are reminded that you very much have limitations. As we age, our body tells us that we are not increasing our physical capacity. Rather, it is diminishing day by day. Not only do we experience physical weariness, though, right? We experience mental weariness. Stress takes a toll on the well-being. We can only concentrate for so long. We can only read or write or work our minds in one direction for so long. We experience spiritual weariness. We grow tired from the grind of life in a broken world, right? I mean, our sin and all the forces of evil never stop their warfare against us. The Bible does not describe our present life as one of complete peace. Rather, one of the constant feelings of the Christian life is warfare being waged against us. Our own sin nature alluring us down a path of destruction. Not only our own sins, but everybody else's sins. Not only their sins, but a spiritual enemy who's working to drive us off wisdom's path. In the Proverbs thus far, as we've been studying together, uh, the enemy has been personified as lady folly, alluring us down the path of death. Proverbs 7, if you remember, says this about her temptations. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Many victims she's laid low. All her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. There's always a lady folly alluring us away from life and toward death. Paul articulates this in Ephesians 6, that you need to put on the whole armor of God, that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I don't know if you've ever wrestled in your life, even if it's just wrestling children. You do really good for the first 73 seconds, right? And then now it's not just the wrestling the foe, now it's your own muscles begin to shake and waver, Wrestling is a, is a certain type of uh, fighting that requires a perseverance. You've got to keep holding on because as time goes, it gets more difficult. There's a battle raging, and it is a wearisome one. Relationships are hard. Marriages are hard. Parenting is hard. And God has called us, he's called Agor, he's called everyone in the room to do more than just survive, right? He's called us to more than survival, he's called us to 
to glory, even in this life. He's called us to reflect the love and mercy and grace of God, to live on a mission that's bigger than ourselves. He's called us to make disciples and to bear burdens and to share joys and to carry a cross and to take the, nation, take the gospel to the nations. He's called, called us to an exhausting task that is bigger than your ability to carry out. So much so that Paul, at the end of his life, articulates his life like this. As he looks backward and is passing the baton to young Timothy, he says in 2 Timothy 4, 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. You see, if we're being faithful to carry out the mission of God in a broken world, we go to bed tired every day. In fact, I would venture to say if you don't ever feel weary, you're probably not pursuing the Lord. (laughs) Because what he's called us to is bigger than us and bigger than we have the stamina to endure day in and day out. We will be able to say with Paul at the end of life, we've fought the fight and finished the race. You see, the human experience, while there's flashes of joy and laughter and beauty and goodness, everyone in the room can confess with Agor from time to time, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God. And I am worn out. Weariness is a part of it, but it's not all of it. Look at verse 2 of Proverbs 30. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I I have not the understanding of a man. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Now, as we keep on reading, we realize that Agor is being pretty hard on himself. He actually has pretty good wisdom. He seems to know God and know His Word. At the same time, though, he's feeling a limitation. Truth number two is this. Not only is is weariness the human experience, and I mean this in the nicest way. Truth number two, ignorance is the human experience. Ignorance is the human experience. I believe that these words of Agor are strategically placed toward the end of Proverbs. And for a thematic reason. If you read straight through Proverbs from beginning to end, you'll find the irony of Agor's words here after 29 chapters of wisdom. The whole book began with a purpose preamble. This is why you're reading Proverbs. If you remember, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 2 through 5. Take a look at that with me. (coughs) Verse 2 says this. This is why Proverbs exist. This is why we've been studying as a church for five months. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, and justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. So, so why is Proverbs being given to us? Why have we studied over the last five months? Oh man, we've wanted to increase our understanding, increase our wisdom, increase our knowledge. We've wanted to know God and how to live in God's world, God's way. Those trigger words there, understanding, wisdom, and knowledge in chapter 1, verses 2 through 7, now at the end of all that wisdom we've talked about, look at chapter 30, verse 2 again. 
I have not understanding. <laughs> I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. And this is at the end of all of the Proverbs placed here on purpose because there's a sense in which at the end of many of the sermons over the last five months, you have not felt more wise, you have felt less wise, <laughs> right? You've, 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 you've seen wisdom in this area of life, wisdom in this area of life, and all it's done, it's made you recognize how not wise you've actually been, right? It, it, it hasn't made you feel like, oh man, I've got it all together after that. No, all it did was expose that you don't have it all together. And here's Agor at the end of all this wisdom literature saying, I ain't it. I don't have it. He feels as if he's missed the mark so badly that he is more animal-like than human-like. That, that he is not fulfilling his purpose as God created him to fulfill as one of his creatures made in the image of God, a human person. That's why he says, I'm too stupid to be a man. I'm too stupid to be human. I'm not fulfilling what God has called me to fulfill. Despite all his learning, despite all his reflection on the wisdom of perhaps King Solomon, he has now bumped up against this reality that he is very much limited. There's a deficit in his own wisdom, and it is frustrating. And we don't know what provoked these two verses. Perhaps Agor is feeling very distant from God. Perhaps he's recently made foolish decisions that led to very obvious consequences. Whatever the case may be, this is the truth. He's feeling, he's experiencing his own ignorance. And this is true of every one of us. From the moment that we are born, we recognize there are limits to our knowledge capacity, limits to our wisdom capacity. There's this little window when we're a teenager where we don't see it, but then as you get older, <laughs> you recognize, right, that there's a limit to the knowledge. Every human being is born knowing very little, and then as you grow, you begin to learn more, and you learn more, and you increase in understanding, and then at some point you hit a threshold in all of your learning and understanding where you realize how much you don't actually know. See, learning as a human kind of has that effect. Some of the most renowned scientists have crises as they continue to learn more and more and more because what they do is they realize how far out of reach infinite knowledge really is and how much of the universe they don't actually understand. They can't even answer the question of where it all came from. The non-Christian world especially feels this if they stop to think deeply. I, I actually asked uh, ChatGPT a couple questions this week just to see. I asked it, uh, Gray's got me on ChatGPT now. I was thinking it was going to take over my phone or something. But anyways, he's, I, I, I went to go ask it a couple questions and prep for this sermon. I just asked it, hey, chat GPT, what is the purpose of life? This is artificial intelligence. What do you think the purpose of life is? And this is the response. It says, the purpose of life is a profound and philosophical question that has been contemplated by individuals, cultures, religions throughout history. It is subjective. 
Different people, different belief systems offer various perspectives on the purpose of life, such as seeking happiness or fulfillment or personal growth or spiritual enlightenment, serving others, or finding meaning in existence. So let me summarize that for you. I don't know, is what ChatGPT said. That answer does not satisfy the longing of the human soul. There is a limit to ChatGPT's knowledge. Every one of us has those types of questions about purpose in life, and every non-Christian feels that limitation, that they need someone outside of themselves to provide them the knowledge and wisdom and purpose that they actually need. Now, Christians, we feel it too. No matter how much you grow in the Lord, you will feel as if you have not grown enough. All of us at some point in our lives will find ourselves making decisions, hitting spiritual walls, undergoing unexpected suffering that we just do not understand. And we'll have moments in our Christian life where before God and everybody, we say, surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I don't get this. I don't understand why this is the way that it is, Lord, or why you allowed this to happen. Apparently, I've not learned wisdom. Apparently, I don't know you. I, I don't get this. If you live long enough, you will learn a lot about what you still have to learn. This is our human experience. You are not infinitely strong, and you are not infinitely knowledgeable, and that's okay to confess to the God of heaven. You see, there will be times where we will say, I don't know what to do, and I'm tired, and I just want to pause right here in the sermon, and I just want to encourage you that this confession of your own weariness and your own foolishness, this confession is not a sinful confession. In fact, it's one that God actually wants you to come to Him with. He knows you're human. He made you. He knows you get hungry and thirsty and tired. He made you with limitations. The problem is not that you get exhausted. The problem is that not that you're tired of this journey of parenting or you're tired of this work. The problem is not that you don't know what to do. The problem is where you turn to find relief from your exhaustion. How do you medicate the weariness? Where do you turn to find the wisdom? The question is a question of where you find refuge in the battle of human experience in a broken world. And I want to free you today to be honest with yourself, with God, and everybody. Do not be embarrassed by the reality that you are human. You are not God. Agur does exactly what our limitations are are supposed to lead us to do. What he does with all of that weakness is he turns to the Lord. Who is it that he, the opening sentence is directed to in verse 1? The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God. How often do we take our weariness to someone else as a badge of honor <laughs> rather than going to the Lord? with our exhaustions. 
Agor goes to the Lord, and then in verse 4, he transi- transitions to begin a reflection of sorts. He begins to ask some rhetorical questions. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who's gathered the wind in his fist? Who's established all the ends of the earth? What's his name? What's his son's name? Surely you know. Truth number three is this. Our weaknesses should drive us to God. That's, that's why they're there. In a poetic style, our, our Agur begins to ask these questions that can only lead to one answer. Who's ascended to heaven and come down? The answer, no one but God. Who's gathered the wind in his fist? Answer, no one but God. Who's wrapped up the waters in the garment? Who's established all the, all the ends of the earth? No one but God. These questions should sound familiar to us because they're an allusion to another book of the Bible that would have been read prior to Proverbs. That book was the book of Job. These questions are reminiscent of the questions that God asks Job when Job comes face to face with weariness and ignorance brought on by unexplainable sorrow. (coughs) It is... Our weariness and limitedness, our sorrows, our unanswerable questions that drive us to the only being that never wearies, who has no limits, who has no unanswered questions. That confession, that confession of your own weariness, your ignorance before God, that is the beginning of Christian maturity. (laughs) We have not and cannot ascend into heaven and return. We did not establish all the ends of the earth. And really, what what is Christian growth except a growing comfortability with this reality that you're not God and that He is? That's Christian growth. That's maturity. It's an ongoing, growing comfortability with the fact that There is a God, and you're not Him. And not only only a comfortability in it, but a joy in it. A joy that you don't have to be God. Because there's already, the job is filled. The final two questions in Agor's list here are ones he actually expects the Israelite reader to be able to answer, and that's Verse, end of verse 4, he says, what's his name? What's his son's name? Surely you know. That first question, what is his name? What's God's name? It's a question that Agor assumes the good Israelite will know the answer to. It's a question Moses asked of the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, right? God appears to Moses, and Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God answers in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Massive moment in the history of of God's p- 
people where God's people now have a name to call God. The name is Yahweh, a Hebrew construction uh, meaning existing one or the always existing one, the eternal one, the only one who was and is and is to come. In fact, every time you see the word Lord in all caps in your Old Testament, that is our translation for that name, Yahweh, the existing one. God, the always existing one, descended to this dude named Moses and he actually spoke to him and gave him a name. There's much significance in a name in the Old Testament. It means you knew him. The fact that Israel now has the personal name of God set them apart from every religion of all time. Their God decidedly made himself known to them. Their God had become their teacher. Their God had entered into relationship with him. But what about the second question? What is his son's name? Weird question, right? What is his son's name? Again, Hagor assumes the Israelite will know how to answer this. Because for the ancient Israelite, the answer to that question was clear. They were the children of God. Exodus 4:22. How does God refer to the people he's saving for himself out of Egypt? God says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Later, Hosea would comment on that. When Israel was a child, God says, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The nation of Israel was to be like a son to the one true God. God brings them out of death, out of slavery. God provides for them. God begins to teach them about himself and about wisdom. He provides them the Ten Commandments. God adopts them and teaches them as a father teaches his son. And what you begin to realize, there's this theme throughout the Proverbs of sonship, of a father lovingly taking his child and teaching them what they don't know so they can flourish and have life because The father loves the child, and and it's beautiful, and it's good. And what you realize, all it is is a small picture of what God Almighty has done for his children, for his people. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 3, on a a human level, is describing a relationship between father and child. Verse 3 of Proverbs 4, when I was a son with my father, tender. The only one in the side of my mother, he taught me, and he said to me, let your heart hold fast my words and keep my commandments and live. And this is what a wise father does, but he does it primarily because a heavenly father has done it first and supremely for his children. Why does Agor remind himself and the reader of this relationship? One commentator writes this helpfully. He says, Agor radically reshapes the crisis of knowing as a crisis of relationship. The resolution to this epistemological crisis or this crisis of ignorance, it's defined in relational rather than intellectual categories. True wisdom is found in a responsive and receptive relationship with Yahweh who is wisdom's sole possessor. There are so many times where my own children will not understand where we're going or why, yet they trust me to get into the car by virtue of the relationship that I have with them. 
And so much of our walk with the Lord is that. Your ignorance problem, your I don't know what to do next, or I feel like I don't know enough, it's the, the fix is not necessarily more intellectual knowledge. The fix is more relational knowledge of a Father in heaven who has your best interest at all times. He, God, our God, aims to meet with you and to know you. And this is our final truth, truth number four. Our God meets us in his word. He speaks to us like a good father speaks to his children, though the gap between us and God is infinite. You cannot bridge the gap with your own work or wisdom or knowledge. God bridges the gap. He comes to us and he speaks. And as Agor says, I'm weak, I'm ignorant. Now he reflects on this reality. But God not only is all powerful, God has become like t- to me like a father. In verse 5, he begins to speak about how he knows that. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Our only hope is an active faith and trust and the trustworthiness of the word that God has given us. We don't understand it all, but we have been told things by a mighty God in heaven that will prove true, right? As we as Christians believe that God has spoken. I mean, he's spoken through prophets and apostles, through the scriptures he's inspired. He's spoken through Jesus, who became for us the key to understanding all of the Bible. And Agor is quoting scripture that he has available to him. He's actually quoting 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 31, words of David that say, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Shows up again in Psalm 18, verse 30, exactly the same. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Notice the parallel here. Notice the parallel The word of God proves true. So word of God is the subject. And then God himself. He is a shield to those who take refuge. Notice the connection between what God has said and God himself. Right? As you trust more and more that what God has said will forever be true, then God himself will be for you a refuge. This this is how the Christian life works. If you want to experience God's care for you, if you want to experience refuge in the weariness, you meet God in his word, and you fight to believe that what he has said will prove true, even though you can't see it right now. This is how we exist in the weariness and in the pain of our ignorance. This is how we face suffering that has no explanation. This is how we live in contentment when life's not what we want it to be. We meet with God, our Father, over the things He's promised in His Word, and we ask Him to help us believe that those promises will prove true in the end. And as we believe those things to prove true in the end, God becomes to us a shield in the present. The shield against the enemy fire is the faith in what God has said. 
will be true in the future. So if you reject God's word as authoritative in your life, now you will never truly live in the refuge that God provides. Again, Agor quotes scripture. Proverbs 30, verse 6. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. He's quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 4, 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you. Don't take from it that you may keep the commandments the Lord your God, <coughs> that the Lord your God I command you. Agur knows the temptation, just as Moses knew the temptation, that when we feel weary... When we feel like we don't know what to do, perhaps we feel our own weaknesses or laziness like an animal that's caged, <laughs> like an animal that's frantic, like, a, like when a car is coming up on a deer and he doesn't know what to do. What he does is he, he, he jets and he moves and he acts and he runs right in front of the car, Right? When we feel our weariness, the temptation then is to carve our own path, to, to make our own way. Sin leads us to pave our own way. Our sin drives us to either set aside the word of God and say, okay, i got to figure this out because it's getting crazy. Or worse, to add to it or replace it. We start to say things like, well, I know God said this, but here's my reasoning for ignoring it. We begin to trust our own word, our own logic, our own path. We say things like, well, God would never do this or that or take this position. We start putting our own words in God's mouth. And Agra warns us to be careful, saying adding to God's word leads to one thing, rebuke from heaven and a shameful realization that in the end, you were a liar, believing lies, and living in a lie on purpose. You see, we, we're prone to weariness, we're prone to ignorance, but we have a choice. We can all the more rely on ourselves, or we can let those weaknesses drive us to a God who wants to meet us in his word that he's given us. See, Agor is leaning in on the wisdom of this confession. He's simply elaborating on a wisdom that's been explained already in the Proverbs. Proverbs 3, verse 5, this is the essence of the wise life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make, your, make straight your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I want to conclude this morning with this. <clears throat> Agor's invitation to you this morning is the same invitation that Jesus offers you. The greater fulfillment of every theme in the book of Proverbs is the gospel message that Jesus ushers into the world, right? The confession of our weariness and ignorance is the starting place. In fact, the whole story of the Bible could be told as a story of sonship, lost and regained. And Israel is called to be the faithful son of Yahweh, the one true God, and they failed miserably at their role. 
Like Adam and Eve, they were supposed to act as God's children in the world. They were supposed to obey his word and carry out his work and reflect the goodness of their father to the other nations. And instead, just like Adam and Eve, just like you and me, they reject his word and they shame the father. They do not represent him well to the nations. Forty times in the book of Proverbs, 40 times in the book of Proverbs, the author likens the reader to either a good son who pleases the father or a bad son who brings dishonor to the father. Proverbs 10.1, a wise son makes a glad father. A foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 13.1, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer doesn't listen to rebuke. Chapter 23, 24, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Chapter 23, verse 26, my son, give me your heart. Let your eyes observe my ways. 28, 7, last one, the one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Forty times in the book of Proverbs, a son is either bringing honor and glory to the father or shame to the father based off of his obedience to the father's word. Here's the problem with the Bible. Israel didn't fit the description of a faithful son. Just as Adam didn't fit the description of a faithful son. Just as you and I do not fit the description of a faithful son. Every human being ever born failed to be a faithful son until the son showed up. Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal son of the father, takes on human flesh, becomes one of us, subjects himself to weariness and ignorance, gets tired, experiences the limitation of being human. Luke tells us that Jesus has to increase in wisdom and stature and favor with God. And through it all, Jesus maintains perfect, unbroken relationship with God the Father by obeying every word from the Father. And he does not shame the Father. He, he brings joy to the Father. The Father says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus pleases the Father perfectly. Jesus came and now we understand in full the answer to the questions that Agor was asking. Agor says, who has ascended to heaven and came down? Who's come down from heaven? Who's the one who gathers the wind in his fist? Who walks on water and tells the winds to stop? Who's wrapped up the waters in his garments? Who's established all the ends of the earth? What's his name? What's his son's name? Surely you know. Jesus of Nazareth. The eternal son comes and lives and dies and rises again, takes our sin, takes our shame, takes our punishment. The one and only faithful son made a way for us to become sons and daughters, not by virtue of our righteousness, but by virtue of his righteousness. Jesus lives the perfect life and dies a sacrificial death and he promises eternal rest instead of weariness, eternal wisdom instead of ignorance. The invitation of Agor to come and confess all of your mess and to trust God is the same invitation Jesus offers 
to you today. I'll close with these words from Jesus. He gives you this invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's, let's turn to Jesus, the key to all of our weariness and ignorance, the key to understanding the word that God has given us in the scriptures. Let's pray together. Father, we praise your holy name for providing a faithful son who would represent us before your throne. We praise your holy name for the goodness of Jesus and the invitation to eternal rest that we have received. Help us all to confess our weariness and ignorance and sinfulness and help us to meet with you in faith and what you have given us in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.